0: They then headed north to what we would call Turkey, what the Roman Empire called Asia Minor. They headed north to Turkey, um, and they first went to a place called, well, it's called Antioch, but so is everything else in the ancient world. So this is always referred to as Pisidian Antioch, or Antioch in Pisidia. Uh, they go to Pisidian Antioch, um, a fairly major city, not not as major as the really major Antioch, from which Paul and Barnabas are being sent. That's Antioch in Syria, but they're now in Pisidian Antioch, um, a, a major city, um, a major Roman city. Uh, they are there, and what you talked about last week was you heard. Paul's uh, rather lengthy, for the book of Acts, uh, sermon to the synagogue there in Pisidian Antioch. Um, It's long, but you still can about read it in two minutes. So all of us assume it is a summary of what um, Paul preached, probably a summary of what Paul typically preached in synagogues. So you heard that last week with Clark. Uh, you heard, beginning at verse 38, you heard Paul's invitation at the end of his sermon. Uh, I think all New Testament preaching, all Christian preaching should be invitational, invite you to do something, invite's probably not a strong enough word, Um compel you to do something. Look at verse 38. Uh, this is as Paul's wrapping up. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, what Paul has just preached is he's gone through the history of the Old Testament, paved the way for Jesus, then presented Jesus to you, presented not the ethical teachings of Jesus, but presented the work of Jesus, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. That's why he says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. So he's he's offering that to the people there in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. They have to decide what to do with that. He goes on. And by him, everyone who believes is freed or justified, we'll talk about that word, from everything from which you could not be freed, justified by the law of Moses. So he's offering them salvation. He's inviting them to surrender their lives to Christ, to surrender their their lives to the demands of Christ. And saying that through Christ you you will receive forgiveness of sins and you'll be justified. Important New Testament word. Justified means to be declared pardoned, to be declared that it is just as if you have never sinned. Justified. Um, big 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 section of the Methodist hymnal is on justification by faith. We're justified by faith. We're made right with God. Our margins are justified um, by faith in the accomplished, finished work of Jesus, not because what we do or because we're wonderful people or because we get our act together, but because of the work of Christ and and are accepting that, surrendering to that, you know, ceasing our own rebellion, ceasing our own rebellion, and uh, receiving the claims of Christ, we are freed or justified, same thing, and we find forgiveness of sins. The law of Moses could not do that. Only thing the law of Moses can do, you know, the, the, the moral law, only thing the moral law can do is show us the mind of God, show us what it is God desires of us, and then remind us that we are incapable of carrying that out, so it sends us fleeing to Christ, the one who could keep the moral law. And through him now, we can be justified. Through the one who kept the moral law, we can be justified. The only thing the law of Moses can do um, is lead us to Christ. Verse 40, after he's offered you this invitation, you and those in the synagogue in Antioch, he offers them a warning. This is part of the Christian faith our culture really doesn't care for. You know, It's okay to invite the culture around us uh, to embrace Christ, Um, But when you start talking about the essential nature of embracing Christ, uh, we lose our culture around us. We can offer Christ as another option among many, another path to God among many. But that's just nothing that the New Testament church has ever known about. So that's why after the invitation is offered, Paul offers a warning Beware, so the warning's pretty clear, beware, therefore lest what is said in the prophets should come about. In other words, what, what the prophets have talked about, um, beware that it doesn't, doesn't apply to you. Beware that the prophets are not talking about you because you refuse to surrender. Anyway, he quotes Habakkuk, Old Testament prophet, at this point. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. So again, that's your New Testament option. Surrender to Christ or perish. And Paul is saying to this Jewish synagogue, see, this comes from the Old Testament. It comes from our scriptures. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. So again, the way we participate in what Christ has accomplished is by believing. By believing. Not by a New Year's resolution to do better, but by believing. So now you get to see the response of of the synagogue. And by this point, you've hung out with Paul enough. In the book of Acts, you're not surprised. You won't be surprised by the response. Verse 42, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. So they say, Paul, come back. Paul, come back next week and tell us some more. Well, again, you're not going to be surprised by how this goes. Evidently, a lot of people are embracing what Paul says. And they say, come back next Sabbath to the synagogue and and teach some more. Verse 43, And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts, these are full proselytes, to Judaism, followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. So, A good ending to this sermon here in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. The crowd says, come back next week. Tell us some more. But some of the folks have a week to get to work. So look at verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Almost the whole city. Um, That means a whole lot of Gentiles or trying to push their way into this Jewish synagogue. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews, and again, almost always, that means Jewish religious leaders. But when the Jews, the Jewish religious leaders, saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict or attack what was spoken by Paul reviling him. So at this point, um the Jewish religious leaders see um that the that the city is going after Paul and Barnabas, listening to what Paul and Barnabas are saying. And um they're jealous, they're angry, is it's attacking their authority, it's attacking the status quo. It's attacking the way they've always done things. So um, they begin slandering Paul and Barnabas. Look at Paul and Barnabas' response. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. So the more they attacked, the more Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, talking about the Jews. It was necessary that the word of God spoke to you first. Uh, Paul makes it clear that the gospel goes first to the Jewish community. After it goes to the Jewish community, then it goes to the Gentiles. Every time Paul goes to a community in the ancient world, he goes to the synagogues first. Then after he goes to the synagogues, he, he goes to the Gentiles Right here in these couple verses, you reach a major, major turning point in Paul's ministry in Acts. He says, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you Jews, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles." Well, Paul, I'm glad you're doing that because that's what Jesus told you to do. Go to the Gentiles. But his love for his people is great. God's love for the Jewish people is still great. Uh, The gospel goes first to the Jewish people, then to the Gentiles. We get to be grafted onto the vine. We get to be grafted onto uh, the Jewish movement. Um, there arose at periods throughout church history, um, more so during the latter Protestant Reformation, um, there arose a theology, particularly among some Protestants, that is referred to as replacement theology. I had somebody in actually we were, you know, we were on the Isle of Patmos, which belongs to Greece, uh, had somebody asked me if I believed in replacement theology. Um, so I knew I was talking to somebody who had studied some New Testament and Christian theology when they asked me if I believed in replacement theology. And I wanted to make it clear, my position, so I said, um, I think replacement theology is um, from the pit of hell and smells like smoke. So, no, I don't believe in replacement theology. What replacement theology is, is that the Christian church has replaced the people of Israel. You know, a lot of language that we've used, which is not wrong, except you push it too far, you know, the new Israel, the new Jerusalem, we are grafted onto the vine, The vine is not thrown away, and we replace it. You with me? So when he turns to the Gentiles, you'll notice on the second missionary journey, he doesn't give up on the Jews. He just goes primarily after the Gentiles, after this. But no, I don't believe in replacement theology. A lot of Protestants embraced replacement theology for about 300 years of our history. Um, There's lots of reasons for that. One of the reasons we stopped, one of the reasons we began to strongly question replacement theology is the Holocaust. That's why in a place like Christian Germany, you could create a theology that if you kept pushing it, it could lead to the Holocaust. The Jews are Christ killers. The Jews have now been replaced by the Christian community. The blood of Christ, we've used this language, the blood of Christ is on all the Jewish people. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm one of the good things that came out of the Holocaust is since the, the 1940s, Christians have tried not to be as anti-Jewish in the way they do theology. They, they try not to say things like, well, the God of the Old Testament is a vengeful, wrathful God, and the God of the New Testament is a loving, gracious God. Pit of hell smells like Smoke. You don't have two gods, one of the Old Testament, one of the New Testament. It's the same God. God, The God of the Bible, the God of Christian theology, has a side that is loving and a side that is wrathful, and they're both important. Any of you that have ever been parents, you understand that. If you were just loving parent and didn't have a judging side to you, your children probably got screwed up by that. If you're a parent, you know that both the, 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 the wrathful, judging side and the loving, gracious side both have to be present. That's why the Christian community, we kept Old Testament and New Testament. That's why my New Testament professor, Duke Mickey Eford, said, please don't walk around carrying just a New Testament. Because that sort of implies you can do without the other one. Well, we can't. So be 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 careful of embracing replacement theology concerning the Jews. Um, be careful even even acting like you're replacing, um, you're, you're you're embracing replacement theology, because again we know what can be the results of that. Uh, in Germany, the Nazis found some some really hard stuff that Luther said that they used on the Christian people in Germany to burn down synagogues, to do Kristallnacht, to go after the Jewish people, and to bring about the Holocaust. But it didn't just happen in the 1930s. It was the end result of, of what, what, was what we now call replacement theology. So uh, be really, really careful be really, really careful what you, what you do or think or imply about the Jewish people. Um, I'll promise you, Jesus does not like it when you disrespect his mother. Jesus does not like it when you disrespect his body, the church. Jesus does not like it when you disrespect his people, the Jewish people. Anyway, this is a significant point in the book of Acts. But take it for what it's worth. Don't push it too far. He's not rejecting the Jews and turning to the Gentiles. Um, we, we particularly Protestants, for a couple hundred years pretty much taught that what was what was going on here. And it led us to really bad places. Anyway, though, he is going to He's going to keep trying on the Jewish people to help them embrace Christ. Um, But he's going to focus from this point on more and more on the Gentiles, even though he still goes to synagogues when he goes to a city. Anyway, what he wants them to understand is he's not doing something new. He's saying the Bible tells us this is the way the Jewish people are supposed to do it. Notice he quotes um, Isaiah forty nine: "I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth." So Isaiah, particularly, which comes later in the writings of the Old Testament, Isaiah particularly says God chose the Jews not for privilege. God chose the Jews to take the light of God to the Gentiles. We owe our whole salvation to the Jewish people. It's the Jewish people that took the light of God, the oracles, the Old Testament, the prophecies, Jesus to the world. So Paul here is quoting Isaiah to say, you know, this is not some sort of new theology that says, you know, forget about the Jews, go to the Gentiles. He says we were always chosen uh, as a people to go to the Gentile world. Another way you can translate the word Gentiles is just the nations. All of the nations that are not the Jewish nation. Uh, the Gentiles, everybody that's not Jewish. Anyway, so Paul, notice New Testament preaching. Wish I could say the same for all modern American preaching, notice New Testament preaching is based on their scriptures. And, and what I've looked at this morning, he's, he's quoted Habakkuk. Here he's quoting Isaiah. Remember, the only Bible that the early Christian church had was what we call the Old Testament. Um, Paul didn't know he was in the process of writing Bible when he wrote his letters. But that's what we claim. But uh, the Bible they had was the Old Testament. So notice, when you heard the rest of Paul's sermon last week, you saw several quotations from the Hebrew Bible. So let's wrap it up. Verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now I want you to see something, because the Bible does much better with this than we do. You know, we because of some of our Greek heritage, sometimes we 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 hate paradoxes. We hate things that don't seem to hold together. You know, one of the most common among Christians is um is salvation based on free will, your choosing, or is salvation based on predestination, the sovereignty of God. And in our kind of post-enlightenment mind, we think those are incompatible. Is it you or is it God's doing? And the right answer, church, is... both. Look right here. I mean, if you just had verse 48, you know, these people... They rejoiced, glorified God, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. If you just had that, you'd say, well, it's all about who God appoints. But notice, notice in, in this same section, notice, go back to verse 39, where Paul finishes his sermon and by him, everyone who does what? And who? Everyone. By him, everyone who believes is freed, justified, saved from everything from which you could not be freed, justified, saved by the law of Moses. So um, I don't think Paul, just like I don't think God, is schizophrenic. He's not confused. So he says, you have to believe. You have to believe to be justified, freed, saved. But at some point, it's the work of God. It's the work of God. Um, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great preacher of the um, 18th century, 19th century, 19th century in London, said that when you go to heaven, You're going to walk through a gate that says, you were chosen from before the foundations of the world. But if you go through the gate and turn around and look, the backside of that gate will say, whosoever may come. Now, in our mind, that's hard to reconcile. Um, And a lot of Christians have spent a lot of energy the last 2,000 years trying to reconcile that. And I'm in favor of serious theological dialogue But at the end of the day, it's both somehow. It's God's work and our work. Um, And it's fascinating in the book of Acts how you see both of those presented closely in a text. If you ever make it all about your choosing, you're heading off into heresy. If you ever make it all about God's choosing, you're heading off into heresy. Somehow you got to keep it both. But here, here, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Even the word believed is still here. So those who believe somehow are appointed. And somehow those who are appointed to salvation are people who believe. So if you have a hard time with that paradox... You know, there's a lot of paradoxes in the Christian faith. Is Jesus human or divine? The answer is yes. 100% of each. Bad math, good theology. There's lots of paradoxes in the Christian faith. If you have a hard time with that kind of paradox, as a post-enlightenment scientific person, you know, too enamored with rationalism, well, you can take it up with God when you get there one day. But the Hebrew mind didn't have that issue. Uh, it was the Greek mind, which we're sort of heirs of the Greek mind. We like things to be rational. We like things to be linear. And sometimes the Bible's just not that. Is not that linear? It's both, both and. When you do theology, always be aware of either or. Always think about both and. Uh, Both and. Remember, God needs you, but not very much. It's always both and. Um, Work as if it all depends upon you, but pray as if it all depends upon God. Then you'll start getting close uh, to the riches of New Testament Christianity. Anyway, verse 49 And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Again, Luke loves to keep showing you that. But the Jews, and again, to keep you from doing replacement theology and heading toward a Holocaust, make sure you always hear the Jewish religious leaders. But the Jewish religious leaders incited the devout women. Isn't that interesting? Uh, Evidently, a lot of women we're coming to faith. A lot of women were were in roles of leadership in the Jewish synagogues. Yeah, another way that we've gotten sort of anti-Jewish over the years is Jesus sort of brought freedom to the women and the Jewish community was terrible on the women. Um, both and. Uh, we have a lot of evidence from the ancient world that there were synagogues where women were the presidents of the synagogues, not just men. So Jesus took it further. Jesus fulfilled what he learned in the Jewish faith. So, um, but it was never as if uh, women were second class citizens and here Jesus came along and made them first class. Uh, they were always, and they still are by the way, sometimes a little of both and we need to be careful about that. But notice in the early Christian church, women were very prominent, uh, very prominent in, in leadership, people like Chloe and Junia. Junia is referred to as an apostle. Hope you know that. Romans chapter 16, Junia is referred to as an apostle. And by the way, Junia is a her. So in in the in, in the New Testament, you see women really being even more propelled into leadership. But it it, it didn't, it was not as if it didn't exist in the Jewish world. Here the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and leading men of the city, stirring up persecution against Paul and Barnabas. So the Jewish leaders went after some strong women and strong men among the Jewish community. And they um, incited them against Paul and Barnabas and, and drove them out of their district. And then they do, in verse 51, what Jesus taught them to do. Paul and Barnabas do what Jesus taught them to do. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. Um, remember, Jesus said that. If they don't receive you, shake the dust off your feet and just... Go on. Now, you need to understand what that means in the Jewish world. It means you're not to take any of that pagan dirt, pagan dust, into the promised land. That's where it goes back to. So when you shake the dust off, what you're saying is you are reprobate, you have rejected God, and I don't want to take any of your contamination with me to where I'm going. Yeah, they were not trying to win friends and influence people. Uh, when they say, shake the dust off, they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. They head east at this point. Um, they go to what is now the modern-day city of Konya uh, in Turkey. Um, and that's where we're going to pick up with them next week. Um, they go to Iconium. Uh, then another one of uh, Luke's famous summary statements. And the disciples, and we assume at this point it means the disciples that were left behind in, Icon- in um, uh, Pisidian Antioch. And the disciples that were left behind in Pisidian Antioch. The disciples that surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ because of the preaching Paul and Barnabas, they were filled, the Greek tense there is they were continually filled, with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's part of what it means to be a disciple, is you're someone who knows the uh, the joy of, of being filled with the Holy Spirit. So that's the church that Paul and Barnabas leaves behind in in um, Antioch. So they leave this church behind, along with some really, really irritated Jews. They also leave that behind um, in Pisidian Antioch, which that's pretty typical of of Paul's ministry. So next week we will pick up, um, don't want to get you into Iconium yet, next week uh, we'll probably do Iconium and Lystra. Lystra is very interesting. Uh, Paul is stoned, Um, at Lystra, and he may have been dead. Maybe not, but he stoned at Lystra. Um, But we're going to, in chapters 13 and 14, you have Paul's first missionary journey. Chapter 15, as you get back to Jerusalem for a really important Jerusalem conference, uh, is something that our contemporary American church needs to... Introduce themselves to again, what was decided in Acts fifteen, and then, um, like I said, in the fall we'll start in Acts sixteen, which is the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey, and that'll take us through take us through the, the remainder of the book of Acts. So, thank you um, for listening to my weakened voice. <clears throat> you know, I'm I'm I'm, for, I'm more and more convinced. I see. Mark Warburton. You see some empty spaces, those are the people I brought back with me last night. Uh, Who else besides Mark was with me on the trip? Me and Mark, we're the two standing. Um, Yeah, there's, um, please pray for all the people that run airlines. Um, I think there's a special place in the ninth ring of hell for them. (laughs) Please pray for all the people that run airlines. Yeah, I think, Mark, it took us, what, 36 hours to, 36 hours to get home last night. Um, anyway, so um, I always come back with sinus stuff. Something about going up and down, up and down, up and down. Uh, this always does it to me. But, um, yeah, I'm really impressed to see you, Mark, here. Um, I, I gave everybody today off that I brought back with me from from, um, from Greece. Let's pray together. God, for the gift of this day, we give you thanks. For the gift of your word, we give you thanks. Help us to surrender. Help us to surrender to you. Help us to surrender to your word. Help us to live as your people here in this world. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Go introduce yourselves to Isabel too on your way out and make some new friends.